Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure has been quite some time since I was on the air last with you guys, and I know many of you all were wondering when would Kirk Monroe be back on the air again next to share another podcast segment episode to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold by Joyce Lee Malcolm. Well, I have good news to report. Another podcast segment episode to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold is going to be revealed tonight. But of course, given where I live in America, it's evening time. But for, but of course, for some of you, it's probably already um, Tuesday morning. I tell you, what a weekend it's, uh, it was. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday yesterday. Um, I was pulling for the Philadelphia Eagles. But it sure uh, turned out to be quite a, um, a game. Uh, there have been many Super Bowls that have been... Um, close. Uh, there have been a few that have been blowouts. Uh, I have seen my share of some exciting Super Bowls uh, since, I re- since I can remember uh, first watching them as a youngster. But even though my team, uh, my beloved team, the Pittsburgh Steelers, didn't make it to the uh, playoffs this year, I still have a lot of high hopes come next year that the Steelers will be in the playoffs and Hopefully somewhere down the road in the near future, I will get to see the Pittsburgh Steelers in a Super Bowl, even if it's on television, but hopefully when the Steelers do play in a Super Bowl next, hopefully they will be able to win that um, seventh Super Bowl. But nonetheless, uh, it it was a great game yesterday. Uh, Do I wish the Eagles had won? Yes, but they certainly gave it everything they had, and what do you know, it came down to the final two minutes of the game in which the game itself was decided. But, you know, uh, that's life, though. Sometimes you win some and sometimes you lose some. Uh, We don't always get to, you know, sometimes the hands we're dealt with even in um, sporting events uh, or attending sporting events sometimes don't always turn out to um, our advantage. But as long as it's a good game, uh, that's really all that matters in the end. And, you know, even if you lose, as long as you uh, didn't leave anything on the table uh, to chance, then you know that you gave it everything you have. That's kind of the way I see it even with uh, podcasting. You know, I always want to make sure that right before I come on the air with you guys, I want to make sure I have everything there is uh, necessary to tell you all. Yes, it's one thing to know of a subject. Yes, it's one thing to know of some things about a particular matter, such or, about, or rather a person, I should say, in this case with Benedict Arnold. But if I don't do my homework and I try to come on the air and podcast about Benedict Arnold's rise and then his um, downfall, if I try to do that and yet I don't have all my facts, then how am I going to get a good story across to you guys? So the bottom line for me is that when I'm before I come on the air each time to podcast with you guys, I have to decipher through uh, chapters and know what's necessary to share what can be uh, held held off, uh, what can be um, really in a sense what is necessary to share with you all so that you all understand why Benedict Arnold did what he did or why he felt so underappreciated, why he is ultimately going to go down a bad path that will uh, backfire on him. And as a matter of fact, in this uh, podcast uh, segment, we're going to uh, learn about uh, the end of uh, Saratoga, how, how, okay, yes, the Americans did emerge victorious at Saratoga, and we will learn about that, but we're going to learn how Arnold came out of nowhere 
and defied odds to lead the Patriots or the Continental Troops to victory. But we're also going to learn about the division that still remains between Benedict Arnold and that lovely officer in Horatio Gates, everybody's favorite commander. <laughs> yeah, right. When you learn more about Horatio Gates, you'll understand just really how inconsiderate he was. We will also uh, be learning in this uh, podcast segment episode where Benedict Arnold goes after Saratoga and whether or not he gets acquainted with someone of special uh, importance. Not, uh, not so much a man, but rather a woman of special importance in, uh, in one of America's uh, largest and most uh, affluent of cities. It's not Boston. It's not New York. Not that they weren't affluent or prominent. How about Philadelphia? You know, after all, Philadelphia is where um, the delegates came together to um, approve the Declaration of Independence and declare their ultimate separation from England. But we must remember, even in 1777, there are loyalists still loyal to the crown, not just in general throughout this war, but in Philadelphia. So let's uh, begin with our first leadoff question to this uh, podcast segment episode to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold, and here we go. What was significant about September 21st, two days after British victory at Freeman's Farm? Here we are at Saratoga, folks, but what it, what's significant? Well, General John Burgoyne received a letter from General Henry Clinton, whom agreed to lead his army from New York City to attack the American post of Fort Montgomery, just south of West Point. Now, I should point out it's one thing to have received a letter during this time, but we must remember that we don't have, you know, one or two day express mail options. You could write a letter, say, at the start of September, but who's to say that you might get it a week later? Well, it turns out that General Clinton's letter that he um, wrote to um, John Burgoyne, it's interesting enough that the, the letter that uh, Burgoyne received from General Clinton. Um, was one that um, didn't, um, or Burgoyne um, received the letter from Clinton, but the date was from September 12th of 1777, so a week later you have this victory at Freeman's Farm. Now, General Clinton's letter led John Burgoyne to postpone any further attacks until reinforcements arrived. Okay, you know, if you're General John Burgoyne, you've just won at Freeman's Farm, and you forced the Americans into a, a retreat, not a massive retreat, but a um, 101 retreat, maybe you should take advantage of the fact that they've had to retreat, and maybe try to finish them off with what you've got. Yes, you may have sustained more casualties, but you did get the upper ground. So, Burgoyne is going to be cautious here, folks, and he is going to um, wait until reinforcement arrives, and the irony to it is that here, here we are two days after the victory at Freeman's Farm on September 21st. Burgoyne does not receive the letter until that date. And, of course, the letter that Clinton wrote was from September 12th, one week and two days after. So Burgoyne has now called off all 
uh, what, we, oh, what we would say all would-be attacks going forward. We forward to uh, September 23rd, General Burgoyne wrote General Clinton requesting some form of assistance in driving away General Gates's army. How much more assistance do you think Burgoyne needs? I mean, now, let me ask you this. Do you think he's out, was he outnumbered going into Freeman's farm? Yes, he was. He had at best probably five to 7,000 troops, but I'm going to say more so on the grounds of between five and 6,000. So he is definitely at a disadvantage. So I'm sure Burgoyne would like to have at least 2,000 more at minimum. So yes, he's written to General Clinton on September the 23rd, requesting for, for more um, higher uh, forms of assistance in driving away General Gates's army. Burgoyne, sadly, never got a response back. The furthest north that General Henry Clinton's troops made it to was at a place called Claremont. Whenever I think of Claremont, I uh, think of uh, an estate, a grand estate that Robert Livingston's family lived at. Robert Livingston was on was one of the uh, members of the Committee of Five that um, helped uh, oversee the draft of uh, Jefferson's Declaration of, of Independence. Besides Jefferson, it was Mr. Robert Livingston, Roger Sherman, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin. But yes, uh, Robert Livingston had a grand estate known as Claremont that overlooked uh, the Hudson River in uh, Columbiana uh, County, uh, probably not too far from uh, Catskill country. Well, it was at uh, Claremont that, that uh, General Clinton's troops, they pretty much uh, raided um, Mr. Livingston's estate. And if any of you all are familiar with the fella named Robert Fulton, not to get off subject, for those of you who were with me when we talked about the fire of his genius with regards to uh, Robert Fulton, Robert Fulton uh, did work for uh, Robert Livingston. As a matter of fact, Robert Fulton's uh, steamship that made history along the Hudson River was named the Claremont in honor of uh, not only having so much work for Robert Livingston, but for the estate that um, Fulton spent time at, being that of Robert Livingston's Claremont. And Claremont was also an estate, it wasn't so much on the Hudson River, but it overlooked the mountains. That was really, that's what made Claremont so grand. It wasn't just looking overlooking the Hudson River and the valleys, but the mountains that, um, the awe-inspiring views of the mountains. Now, prior to September 1777 coming to an end, did both armies engage one another in some form of confrontation after Freeman's farm battle of September 19th? Yes, uh, parties of soldiers per each side would go about harassing one another as a means of getting the upper hand per um, what we would think of as from a territorial or a terrain advantage. The Patriot troops, in this case the sharpshooters under, Dan under Daniel Morgan's command, were very familiar with irregular uh, style warfare fighting. And those of you who've been with me for some time have probably heard me talk quite a deal, quite a good deal in various uh, podcast uh, topics about irregular uh, warfare, what we might think of as uh, modern-day guerrilla warfare. When we think of irregular warfare, we don't we in colonial times we don't think of uh, traditional European style, where you bring troops out into open battle, 
where the troops are uh, placed side by side. They're in line getting ready to fire what's called a volley where you're hoping to fire at least 100 yards. The more men you have um, placed side by side, a better volley you can get in knocking down the opposition from, say, 100 yards out. But in irregular style fighting, what you're doing is you're not going, you're not fighting conventional, you're fighting unconventional. You are not only scouting the enemy from a distance, but you could be um, hiding behind trees, opening fire, and say knocking down maybe three or five uh, soldiers from the opposition. Your goal is to probably not hit a grand slam out of the park, but you're hoping to inflict uh, casualties or uh, in this case, wounding troops on the opposite side to where their numbers will decline over time to where the opposition will not have a full functioning um, army that can perform at, at any particular moment's notice when a crucial battle is about to occur. So yes, Daniel Morgan's uh, troops, being in this case the sharpshooters, have plenty of experience with irregular warfare, and they would they went about regularly harassing the British patrol units on the western uh, flank. And, you know, with regards to a flank, that's another term for their uh, side, whether it was on the left or the right side. Early October 1777, General Burgoyne came to the realization, that is early October 1777, General Burgoyne came to the realization that General Clinton's troop forces weren't coming to assist him. Two of Burgoyne's officers below him went as far as proposing a retreat. Think about it. Okay, we if, if I was one of Burgoyne's officers below and proposed this retreat, maybe it was my way of saying, hey, look, we've got an advantage. We won with what we had at this particular skirmish, so why not try to outsmart the Continental forces, that is Gates's troops, and go ahead and start going south and if we can do that, then we can meet up with Clinton's troops, and it, we might just be able to wheel it back up north to where, if luck is to our side, we just might be able to finish off Gates's army. It sounds like a crazy strategy, but sometimes it's better to retreat when you've got enough numbers to your side. Yes, you may have lost more men than the Continentals, but sometimes you better go when the when the going is to your advantage. But Burgoyne does not see it that way, folks. Burgoyne views retreat as being cowardly. So therefore, John, General John Burgoyne and the officers below him agreed to attack the Patriot left flank side with over 2,000 troops come October 7th. But little did Burgoyne realize by October 7th of 1777, the Continental Troop Force had swelled to 12,000 and over. So they may have taken a licking at Freeman's Farm, not a massive licking, but the Continental Troops were able to re, um, what do you call it, they were able to um, re-strategize, uh, they were able to um, gain more numbers. And think about this, where were those numbers that probably um, come from? Uh, either from western Massachusetts, New Hampshire, western Connecticut. So the bottom line is there is uh, some momentum that, um, that uh, John Burgoyne did not see. 
he should have uh, perhaps led some uh, raiding parties along the New York, uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut line that might have uh, disrupted uh, potential um, the potential means of getting troops to come uh, westward into Saratoga. General Horatio Gates received intelligence regularly per large numbers of deserters leaving the British side and had also gotten a hold of General Clinton's response to Burgoyne's calls for assistance. So, I'm, you know, all this time I was thinking, well, gee, it seems like the numbers for the American side, given that they've grown, came from, like, say, New Hampshire, Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts. They might, they probably did, but where do you think the, where do you think some of these other numbers came about with having up to about 12,000? Desertions from the British side. It seems like those British soldiers who don't want to fight for John Burgoyne, they'd rather go fight for the Americans, knowing that, okay, if we stay on Burgoyne's side and we lose, we'll probably end up becoming a prisoner of war. I can only imagine just how much information they probably gave um, General Gates, which led to Gates's being able to uh, intercept um, General Clinton's response to Burgoyne with regards to assistance. Valuable intelligence gathering at a time when it was when it was sorely needed. Now, where was Benedict Arnold on the morning of October 7, 1777? He was confined to a tent under General Gates's orders, stripped of all previous commands held going back to and before September 19th. I'll tell you that Horatio Gates is a jerk. Sorry, I know that's not nice to say, but really. And remember, if you serve under Horatio Gates, it's all about Horatio Gates. He doesn't care what qualities you bring. He might appreciate those qualities one day, but at the present moment, but come tomorrow, he's not going to appreciate them. Now, the Second Battle of Saratoga, or what was known as the Battle of Bemis Heights, formally began October 7th, with the opening fire coming between 2 and 2.30 p.m. from British Grenadiers. The Grenadiers were uh, soldiers, or what we would think of as light infantry, um, they didn't uh, carry a lot. Uh, they didn't carry a lot of heavy equipment, so therefore, by not carrying a lot of heavy equipment, they had better means to move um, quickly from point A to point B. When it came to such tasks as scouting, to perhaps engaging in irregular uh, skirmishes to offset the enemy. So yes, the firing takes place between two and two thirty uh, from British Grenadiers. Benedict Arnold could hear the ground shaking as a result of loud sounds made from cannons to rifles and muskets. He couldn't bear it no more to be relegated to the sidelines, in this case being in a tent. Arnold took matters into his own hands by getting on his horse and rushing into the heart of the battlefield where the combat activity took place. You know, I'm thinking to myself, when I read this book and mentioning now what I just told you all a second ago, don't you think Horatio Gates would have had enough smarts to have placed some bodyguards by Arn where Arnold was um, confined to, so this way Benedict Arnold wouldn't pull a stunt? You would think so, but maybe Horatio Gates thought Arnold was... Arnold just didn't have enough confidence in him to want to go out. Well, he sure did. He sure is going to underestimate Benedict Arnold here. 
So yes, Arnold took matters into his own hands by getting on his horse and rushing into the heart of the battlefield where all this uh, activity is taking place. While on horseback, Arnold shouted to his aides, and this is all in quotation, folks, so pay careful attention. Listen. No man shall keep me in my tent today. If I am without command, I will fight in the ranks. But the soldiers, God bless them, will follow my lead. Come on, victory or death. To me, this almost sounds as if this was Benedict Arnold's last stand, his last true moment of achieving some kind of grand-scale glory. In other words, regardless of where one stood above or below Arnold, Benedict Arnold was willing to risk it all. Knowing the fight at Saratoga perhaps could have been seen as his last potential stand behind achieving the ultimate glory, knowing how much men like General Gates deeply resented him. Yes, there was Custer's last stand. Of course, that was a whole different time and a whole different um, matter. But I'm just beginning to wonder if Saratoga, the Battle of Saratoga, could truly be best seen as Benedict Arnold's last stand. The first phase to the Second Battle of Saratoga, the first phase to the Second Battle of Saratoga lasted roughly one hour and British General John Burgoyne lost nearly 400 men, including many grenadiers, light infantry, to artillery. He lost a lot of artillery pieces. General Gates sent Major John Armstrong out to seize Benedict Arnold and return him straight to headquarters. Arnold outrode Armstrong on horseback. As Arnold strided onto the battlefield, he saw British defenses per the right side of their camp positioned or supported by two redoubts, fortifications. Arnold led the American chase, including overseeing Brigadier General Enoch Poor's men attack one of two enemy redoubts. After achieving that, folks, he then went on to assist Brigadier General Ebenezer Learn's men by helping them navigate a break, or I should say a space between the redoubts, which led to intense fighting. And in the midst of it all, Arnold's horse got hit by a volley, only for Arnold's leg to become broken by shot, bullet. He, was fall, he fell off the horse. And not only did he fall off the horse, but he fell onto the battlefield. He fell into the heart of the battle, into the action of the battle, folks. Fell into the heart of the field. Why he didn't die right away, I don't know. But after he uh, was shot and he was, and fall, and he was, and he fell off his horse, and then his horse landed on him. Not long after, Benedict Arnold said, he wished he had been shot in the heart. A lot of uh, powerful um, words to come out of his uh, mouth, but. This isn't about glorification here. He knows it's his last stand. He knows that he knows that to him that this battle was victory or death. Is it fair to say that Benedict Arnold wished he were dead at that moment? 
I know it sounds hard to say, but yes, he 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 does wish he were dead because then he could have achieved what we will find out here soon of uh, martyrdom. And I'll explain that to you more here momentarily. The loss of both British redoubts, or I should say the fortifications, per the right side of their camp proved costly, or I should say fatal, following the aftermath of Bemis Heights battle. The evening of October 7th led General Burgoyne with no other option than to retreat, which was done but doing so closer to the confines of the Hudson River. You know, it's one thing to lose a battle, folks, but that doesn't automatically mean you just go back to your uh, encampment and and all of a sudden um, get everybody back in the huddle and start regrouping to prepare for what might come battle-wise in two or three days. No, this isn't this isn't like playing basketball or football. If you've lost a lot of men, you're not going to want to fight anytime soon. Even if you have enough men left, that doesn't automatically mean that you could still conduct another uh, battle. General Burgoyne is really stuck between a rock and a plate, between a rock and a hard place, and one does have to wonder if General Henry Clinton's troops made it further north to Saratoga with an extra two, three thousand men on Clinton's side. Could that have made more of a potential difference to where the scale could have been tipped to um, Burgoyne's side? To the side of the British, I should say, it is possible. I don't know how strong of a guarantee from a percentage standpoint it could have come to, but there could have been a greater likelihood that um, that there could have been a better um, planned attack. A lot of hunches, a lot of guesses, a lot of speculation, a lot of circumstantial talk. Uh, how did Benedict Arnold respond to Captain Henry Dearborn's concern regarding his leg injury? Arnold replied per the following, in quotes, In the same leg. I wish it had been my heart. For Arnold, getting shot in the heart would have meant a faster death and greater likelihood of achieving martyr status. Dying for a cause he knew was just. You know, that is the cause for independence but also knowing people from within were out to get him. Death on the battlefield would have silenced all critics and elevated Arnold to martyrdom. I think it would be fair to say that the majority of those in Congress would have agreed to have elevated his status to martyrdom had he died on the battlefield that day. Of course, yes, there would have been those who would have objected, but perhaps it would have... Uh, been on the side of the majority agreeing that he agreeing to a resolution uh, saying that yes Benedict Arnold went out in a blaze of glory to um, achieve martyrdom status well Major John Armstrong finally caught up to Arnold and of course Armstrong obviously has the same mentality in mind as Horatio Gates. I mean, the first thing that's not going to come out of Armstrong's mouth is, oh, are you okay there, Benedict? No, he, he wants Benedict Arnold returned to Gates' headquarters immediately. He doesn't care about how hurt Arnold is. Arnold refused. He refused Armstrong's orders. If I had been in Arnold's shoes, I would have refused. I know it's not right to uh, go against uh, someone above you, but look at the situation Arnold's in. I mean, he could be... You know, if he doesn't get the help he needs, he could die. 
But at the same time, would Benedict Arnold be fine with that? Yes, he would. But at the same time, you know, we should also be putting aside our personal feelings here and think about someone's well-being. So, yes, Benedict Arnold uh, refuses Major John Armstrong's orders. However, the soldiers in Asa Bray's Connecticut Militia Company went above and beyond to place Benedict Arnold on a bed stretcher where they carried him to a field. Well, they didn't carry him to a field. Rather, I should say a field hospital. And we should keep in mind, folks, that even during the American Revolutionary War, um, you know, it's, e it's, one, it's easy for one to think, gosh, you know, what would they do with those wounded soldiers? Didn't they send them anywhere? Sure. They had hospitals. They had what were called flying hospitals, um, makeshift hospitals, hospitals that were designed for uh, temporary purposes, you know, we think about it. there. There's no ambulances. There's no emergency helicopters. You do have to have something set up in the event you have a lot of uh, soldiers wounded. And you know, we do have to keep in mind though that for every soldier who's shot and killed, two or three are, are wounded and uh, run the risk of dying from um, diseases. So we do have to remember that disease is going to take uh, more men's lives in the American Revolutionary War uh, than uh, deaths on the battlefield. And I think it's fair to say that as time progresses that that will become a common theme. I mean, it was a very a huge um, common theme in the American Civil War. Nearly 600,000, um, close to about 600,000 troops lost their lives. And the majority of those troops who died, um, if they didn't die on a battlefield, it was due to disease for every soldier in the Civil War who died, uh, three soldiers died from disease. So we, d we must keep in mind that, um, yes, it may have been um, revolutionary for its time to have a makeshift hospital or a flying hospital, but even those hospitals alone, while, yes, they could uh, save uh, wounded soldiers, but unfortunately they would not have probably been able to have saved all wounded soldiers. So Benedict Arnold does get sent to a um, field hospital, but he's left out and he's he's forgotten. He's deliberately forgotten by General Horatio Gates, which doesn't come as a uh, as a shock. But sadly, neither General Horatio Gates, being the lead commander, nor Benjamin Lincoln, second in command. The greatest tragedy here, folks, was that neither one of them had set foot once at any moment on the field during the Second Battle of Saratoga on October 7th, 1777. Here's Benedict Arnold willing to risk it all. He defied Horatio Gates's orders, and yet Horatio Gates is sitting back at headquarters. It's almost as if maybe Horatio Gates wanted everyone else to do the dirty work. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong in leading your army out to, um, out to uh, battle if you're an officer, but if you're the lead commander like Horatio Gates, yeah, you do have a duty to lead your army out into battle. George Washington wouldn't have been sitting back at his at his headquarters letting all the other officers do the dirty work for him or or work that maybe was um, too much for them to do when George Washington could be o helping oversee all that's going on, which he would have been doing. And we must keep in mind that not long after Saratoga, there were those in Congress who wanted Washington out. They wanted him out because of the losses at um, 
Brandywine and at um, Germantown on the outskirts of Philadelphia, which ultimately led to Philadelphia falling into uh, British hands. Now, British General uh, John Burgoyne lost around 1,000 soldiers per both Saratoga battles, whereas the American losses stood around uh, 500 killed or wounded. After the second battle, Burgoyne ordered his men to retreat 10 to 15 miles north near present-day Schuylerville, which is named after uh, the Schuyler family, being uh, General Philip Schuyler, October 8th. October 8th saw General Burgoyne back in an area that he had held from September 16th. Wow, that's quite a retreat, folks, to say the least. October 17th of 1777, General Burgoyne surrendered his army to Horatio Gates. In the midst of the loss at Saratoga, General Burgoyne returned to England only to never receive another command post within the British Army. A crushing blow on his record. Arnold's leg wound left him bedridden for five months. The Continental Army victory at Saratoga eventually helped persuade the French to take up arms with America and form an alliance against England. And who was overseas in France... What American was overseas in France that helped uh, persuade the French to come join on our side, especially after Saratoga? How about Mr. Benjamin Franklin, folks? Mr. Benjamin Franklin. And, of course, you know, there again, we don't have phones, we don't have an internet, we don't have um, texting. So it's going to take a, a, it's going to take some weeks, it could take a month at, at best to find out what happened. Did we finally get a big, big enough victory to get the French on our side? And what do you know? It's happened. New York has been saved, folks. I mean, New York will not be uh, split uh, from New England. It won't be cut into two. Um, so we have uh, secured uh, New York from uh, not falling into uh, British hands, even though the British still have the city, but upstate New York, I should say. After uh, spending five months recovering from his leg wound, Wood Benedict Arnold eventually returned to serving in the Continental Army. Uh, believe it or not, folks, yes, he did uh, return, which is uh, good news. May 21st, 1778, Benedict Arnold arrived into uh, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, right on the outskirts of uh, Philadelphia, where General Washington and his troops were stationed. But now, Washington's army appeared in better shape versus a few months before, as the winter of 1778 saw many soldiers perish due to frigid temperatures, including uh, food shortages. This was truly a, uh, I, I think it's fair to say there were many uh, crises from within that tested Washington's army with regards to make or break. Trenton, uh, the lead up to Trenton was obviously one. Um, Valley Forge is another. Uh, there was Moorestown, New Jersey in the winter of 1779. There were uh, plenty of other ones too, folks. But we also had some help at Valley Forge from a uh, Prussian officer named Baron von Steuben, who became such a successful drill master that he was able to help reinvigorate Washington's army by employing new uh, drill tactics 
And so by spring of 1778, this army, this continental army, is a much better disciplined functioning army. And, for the, and if any of you all ever hear of uh, Steubenville, Ohio, or know of Steuben County, New York, uh, think of Baron um, von Steuben. Though, uh, Steubenville, Ohio is named after Baron von Steuben. That is close to the Ohio-Pennsylvania line, not far from uh, Pittsburgh. Steuben County in upstate New York, uh, we think of um, Finger Lakes, Southern Tier Country, uh, Corning, uh, Painted Post, uh, Corning, you know, Corning Ware Glass. So definitely when you think of Steuben County, uh, think of Corning. Benedict Arnold um, is still not 100% well enough to lead um, an army out into battle, given uh, his leg wound uh, was very um, severe, but he's just not 100% well enough to lead an army. Washington um, learned of British General Henry Clinton's troops leaving Philadelphia, and given that they have left Philadelphia, Washington has something in, um, up in store for uh, Benedict Arnold. He goes about appointing Arnold uh, to become Philadelphia's military governor on May 28, 1770, 1778, with the intent to restore order and oversee smooth transition of America's largest city back into the hands of the Patriots, a.k.a. the Americans, including the Continental Congress and the Pennsylvania Executive Council. We must remember, folks, that um, that when we were forced to um, abandon Philadelphia, we had to go, um, the Continental Congress went west. They went into um, western PA, but not what we would think of as Pittsburgh. They went uh, as far west as uh, present-day Lancaster and Harrisburg, PA, to convene. So we're talking, you know, Harrisburg is probably, what, maybe two hours at most from Philadelphia. So that's as, that's as far as they went, because if they went just on the outskirts, they knew that the, that the British could surprise them with an attack and, you know, and hold members of Congress hostage to where perhaps Washington might have to surrender altogether, and then we don't have a war. And then we don't have a document that doesn't mean anything, uh, once again, the Declaration of Independence. So uh, the bottom line, folks, is that government had to function, even in the midst of evacuating Philadelphia, but they had to find another place to convene. And what we do fail to forget sometimes is that the Continental Congress did have to um, evacuate uh, more than once just in order to function in this, uh, in this uh, war against the mother country. Now... May 30th of 1778 is important because Benedict Arnold had accepted General Washington's request in becoming Philadelphia's military governor. He was required, folks, to take an oath of loyalty. When you take an oath of loyalty, folks, that means you're going to be committed to something. Not just short-term, not just long-term, but you're going to be committed forever. This oath of loyalty, folks, required Benedict Arnold to agree to support, maintain, and defend the new United States of America. Gosh, it's almost like taking the oath of office when becoming the President of the United States. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the oath of office 
and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Of course, we don't have a Constitution just yet, but that's, you know, when the president gets sworn in, those are the lines that he must say. And, of course, at the very end, so help me God. So it is fair to say that Benedict Arnold is doing something um, that is somewhat similar to what will be in store um, by the uh, end of the uh, of the 1780s when George Washington becomes America's first president. So yes, Benedict Arnold has agreed to uh, support, maintain, and defend the new United States of America. His new task sought to help reconcile those residents whom remained in Philadelphia while under British occupation. This is going to be a very uh, unique uh, test for Benedict Arnold. Congress is not completely fond of Benedict Arnold, which is a no-brainer. Despite all of his accomplishments on the battlefield, the Pennsylvania Executive Council was comprised of radicals whom were distrustful of moderates and willing to go as far as punishing those from within, including going after anyone deemed suspicious of sympathizing with the enemy, being the British. Well, I can understand about uh, going after those sympathizing with the British. I don't understand why you would want to go after... Um, those whom are, you know, moderates, but there again, it just goes to show you that even in in this um, Re American Revolutionary War, that there is that there are uh, partisan politics even from amongst the patriots. Little did General George Washington realize that by appointing Benedict Arnold to uh, military governor of Philadelphia, it would prove later on down the road to become a decision the general would later regret. So let's keep that in mind now, folks, that, um, that yes, we may think that Washington made a noble choice by giving Benedict Arnold this new post, but before this podcast episode ends, we're going to learn, of, of, we're going to start learning some things uh, with regards to decisions that Arnold makes that are just the beginning of his ultimate eventual downfall. Besides Philadelphia being America's largest city before and during the Revolutionary War, was its port America's busiest? Yes, it was, but, Phil but Philadelphia's population was heavily divided between loyalists and patriots, along with patriots themselves being heavily divided from within amongst the radicals and the moderates. George Washington uh, was not fond of Philadelphians in private, based upon uh, their overall personal attitudes. Well, I think a lot of that would probably have to do with, um, with the bitter partisanship on where people's loyalties uh, stood. In other words, for Washington, you know, trust is a big thing. And when you're struggling to find those around you whom you thought you could trust, say, today, but all of a sudden you learn tomorrow or a week later, that you that those people partook in activities that were not becoming, or rather I should say unbecoming and um, unacceptable, then for George Washington, he has to say to himself, if I can't trust these people from within whom I thought I could trust, whom can I trust? The British departure from Philadelphia is not a smooth one. Prior to Arnold's military governor post, um, Going into gear, the British burned anything they could that which they couldn't move, which included unfinished ships, 
Fires lasted for two days. It had gotten so bad, folks. June 19, 1778, Benedict Arnold and the first group of Continental soldiers entered Philadelphia only to see it in total disarray. I mean, it was almost, yes, we're in a time of war here right now, but the city of Philadelphia pretty much, we could say, was in a war zone. And to make matters worse, folks, uh, British officers were looting the city's homes that they had occupied. One British officer named John Andre, and pay careful attention to that person's name because John Andre will be discussed again here soon, uh, somewhere down the road in another um, podcast episode. But John Andre was instructed by his superior officer to take an assortment of Benjamin Franklin's belongings. So John Andre stayed at Benjamin Franklin's house with, without Benjamin Franklin's permission. Franklin, I want to say, has to still be overseas in France. But he, um, he was given permission by um, his superior officer to, um, to pretty much... Um, take an assortment of Franklin's belongings. Congress authorized all items that had not been confiscated by the British to be secured until the Continental Army recorded or tallied everything that they could uh, get their hands on. Arnold struggled with restoring order. Given the radical and moderate patriots in Pennsylvania made things so unbearable, Arnold didn't feel appreciated or valued by the Pennsylvania Executive Council given the sacrifices he and other officers made, risking their lives more than once while a handful of Patriot delegates were living cozy lives to profiting from the war. And for those of you who were with me when we talked about Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan, we did learn how there were some delegates who did profit from the war. But at the same time, we must keep in mind that they had the money, the means to invest in um, vessels, you know, privateers whom could go about um, halting British advancements along the sea, or along the seas, I should say. And without those delegates having the money and connections that they had, who's to say that as time went along, or in the end, that we might have Who's to say that we might not have been able to have defeated uh, the world's uh, mightiest um, empire? So let's just think about that. Yes, it may not have been right that some delegates were living cozier lives and profiting from the war, but sometimes, you know, things happen for a reason, even if not everyone agrees unanimously. You know, given just how much hardship to dangers in camp and, and battle uh, Benedict Arnold endured, did he personally feel, listen to this carefully, folks, did Benedict Arnold personally feel that he had the right to live big, or rather I should say extravagant? In other words, did Benedict Arnold feel that he ought to live perhaps beyond his means, perhaps, perhaps beyond his average means? Yes, he did. Benedict Arnold turned to a fellow by the name of Major David Solbury, Franks, whom would become his new assistant, Franks chose the grand estate of, uh, of the William Penn family as Arnold's new headquarters. Arnold was driven around, folks, in a servant chauffeur, chauffeur coach and four 
just like British General William Howe had undergone when he was uh, commanding uh, Philadelphia. Arnold's actions now, folks, are being met with scorn or with disdain, discontempt by the Pennsylvania Executive Council. On one hand here, I'm going to have to agree with the Pennsylvania Executive Council, this could be seen as a red flag. In other words, who's given Benedict Arnold per, who gave Benedict Arnold permission to be uh, chauffeured in a um, coach and four? I mean, who gave him permission? <laughs> Not long after becoming Philadelphia's military governor, Benedict Arnold began courting an 18-year-old gal, or I should say an 18-year-old woman, whom uh, came from a prominent uh, Philadelphia family. Her name would be none other than Peggy, or I should say Margaret, a.k.a. Peggy Shippen. She was the daughter of a well-to-do family whom remained in Philadelphia during the British occupation. Peggy was born in the year 1760, the same year that King George, that George III um, became uh, officially coronated. Peggy was born to Edward and Hannah Shippen. The Shippens were one of the most distinguished and richest of American families. And it just so happens, folks, that Peggy's grandfather, Edward Shippen, was the founder of Penn University, as well as the College of New Jersey that we now know as Princeton University. And there is a town in Pennsylvania, uh, not far from Harrisburg, uh, not too far from the Pennsylvania-Maryland line known as Shippensburg. That is named after the Shippen family. And there is a college uh, known as uh, Shippensburg College. Uh, that's where my mother went for uh, two years before transferring to the University of uh, Virginia. But uh, if you ever hear of uh, Shippensburg, uh, think of Peggy Shippen's family, uh, a.k.a. The, uh, the Greater Shippen family. July 4th, 1778, Benedict Arnold and Peggy Shippen first met at a ball to celebrate the second anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Whereas other families had fled Philadelphia during the British occupation, the Shippen family uh, just so happened to be one of the, the few whom stayed behind. Peggy Shippen was viewed by all who, whom came in contact with her as being elegant, frequent visitor to dinners, balls, parties, theater plays, you name it. She didn't miss out on anything. She was... Uh, a very visible person when it came to social uh, regalias. And these uh, theater plays, believe it or not, would have been coordinated by British officers to help enlighten the mood amongst uh, the greater uh, public whom uh, chose to stay um, in the midst of the British occupation. Mid-July of 1778, saw military governor Benedict Arnold write to Washington requesting a command in the Navy. Washington replied on August the 3rd, advising Arnold himself to be his own best judge in deciding how to go forward. Washington didn't know a whole lot about, um, about uh, naval expertise, but as much as I admire the general, this would have been a great opportunity for the general to have said in his reply, number one, Benedict, um, 
I do believe that you should uh, go forward in pursuing a naval um, uh, a naval advancement or a, a spot in the Navy, given what's given the success that you did have at Lake Champlain and keeping the British from going further up the uh, Hudson River. Uh, after uh, with regards to um, holding off uh, further uh, British advancements. And had Washington um, advocated by going forward and saying, I want you know Benedict Arnold to have a, a naval command post, this could have been something that might have helped Arnold's long-term future regarding not only just America's cause, but it was also um, an opportunity lost it also might have um, prevented um, the inevitable from happening, which we will eventually, you know, find out not too terribly in the far distant future. But this was an opportunity that Washington could have uh, seized upon that might have um, helped elevate uh, Benedict Arnold's um, military career. But given that this opportunity was lost, Arnold stayed on at the post as military governor. As uh, military governor of Philadelphia, did uh, Benedict Arnold make, or rather I should say, engage in improper practices involving uh, profits, or I should say profiteering? Uh, yes, folks, he did. Uh, for starters, Congress ordered all shops in Philadelphia closed until the Continental Army could count all total contents that had uh, remained behind. But on the flip side, Benedict Arnold went about refurbishing the William Penn Estate in grand style. The Continental Army's in dire need of clothing, but the flip side saw Benedict Arnold make private make a private deal with James Meese, who was the clothier general of the army, in purchasing goods for the army and other materials per their own risk. Miscellaneous goods were sold to benefit Arnold and his assistants, while countless merchants businesses remain closed. Benedict Arnold, folks, has gotten off the wrong track. And I do blame, if anybody is to be held at fault for this, I mean, yes, you could blame Benedict Arnold, but I do have to blame his um, assistant, uh, Major David Solbury, Franks. Matter of fact, uh, Major Franks was also the one whom... Um, whom introduced Benedict Arnold to Peggy Shippen. Now, October of 1778 saw uh, British vessels attack Egg Harbor, New Jersey, where they burned houses and ships. And despite requesting a, a 100 militiaman unit to defend Egg Harbor, one of Benedict Arnold's biggest mistakes in this instance lied, well, rather, um, it came with regards to his requesting, or I should say seeking, Half profit from goods not seized by the British. Why is Benedict Arnold all of a sudden so concerned about the almighty dollar here in terms of profits? Well, for one, Arnold got 12 wagons from Pennsylvania to rescue the goods, which otherwise would have fallen into enemy hands. That's totally understandable. The action itself, however, was not approved by Congress. Of course, I know, you know, some decisions sometimes can't wait if it's a matter of either life or death, or if it's a matter of, of trying to modify a situation that you know is not going to be 100% resolved, 
to your satisfaction, but you know that you can modify things, say, between 25-30%, then you, yes, you may have to do some things if it means taking matters into your own hands, but yes, there could still be um, red flags coming up with regards to not getting uh, proper consent from Congress. But nonetheless, Benedict Arnold uh, obtained 12 wagons from Pennsylvania, given that Egg Harbor, New Jersey, you know, it's not far from the New Jersey-Pennsylvania line, but he got these 12 wagons from Pennsylvania in enough time to rescue the goods that otherwise would have fallen into enemy hands. The action itself, yes, was not approved by Congress, making Arnold all the more unpopular by everyone else from within. That is, from Congress to the executive, Pennsylvania Executive Council. However, on a bright note, April 8th of 1779, Benedict Arnold and Peggy Shippen were married. Shortly afterwards, though, Arnold endured further wrath via a court-martial. Well, this is where we end, folks, with uh, today's uh, podcast segment episode. But when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn more about where this court-martial goes because uh, it's one thing to be summoned to court for something, but a court-martial basically is either going to uh, determine whether you're innocent or guilty, and if you are guilty, a court-martial is going to you know, be a stiff sentence. It could be um, perhaps being prohibited from not even being allowed to ever serve again in the Continental Army. But when I'm on the air again next, next time with you guys, we're going to talk more about the uh, court-martial and some other um, relevant um, stuff that we probably don't already know enough about, but ought to know more about as we get uh, closer and closer to Benedict Arnold's um, most unthinkable of actions that would that will ultimately uh, seal his fate. Thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you guys, and thank you for being such ardent listeners. Uh, without you all, I'm not sure where I would be, but uh, thank you again from the bottom of my heart. So wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe and uh, look forward to seeing you all again here soon. Take care for now.